0: Welcome to the Starting Over Stronger Show, where you'll find help and hope for your divorce survival and recovery. Divorce well, live well. Thank you for joining me again for another week of reading my new memoir called Starting Over Stronger Finding a Pathway Out of Codependency to Create a New Life of Peace. We are about halfway through the book, and we are going to start on page 107 this week on a section titled "Home Room," and we're just going to jump right in, and we'll chat a little at the end. Thanks again for joining me. If it is your first time today, you'll want to go back to part one of this series or jump back into former episodes that relate to what you're struggling with as you go through a divorce or separation. Today, we're going to start with page 107. The next several years could be summed up as the making-it-work years. Homeschooling took its toll, and after a couple years, I wanted to just be the kid's mom again. We still were not feeling good about public schools, but our new church we had been attending for a couple of years also had a Christian school, so we made that change in 2007. Callie was in fourth grade, and Colin was in second Although it was a financial stretch, we figured out how to make it work. This decision freed me up to explore what I wanted to do, other than being a full-time homemaker. We did not need my extra income, but I wanted to explore and enjoy my passions and abilities. Without kids at home all day for the first time since our marriage began, I wanted to find work for me. It was not about the money. I had completed my associate's degree in general studies, but I had not completed my bachelor's degree for several reasons. One, I did not know what I wanted to major in. Two, we did not have the extra money to do so without incurring debt. And mostly, my educational pursuits simply were not a priority. Going into debt for a career I was unsure about and that he did not find necessary was not a supported idea. Also, he was always taking classes and getting certifications and such, working to climb the corporate ladder. The expectation was that I would fully support him, which translated to not investing time or money on educational pursuits for me. Since I began making custom shaped cakes for my kids birthdays and people raved about them, I spent some time creating a new little side specialty cake business. I sold a few here and there, but it was not something I enjoyed enough to grow. Another creative pursuit that began as a personal endeavor was memory videos. These picture slideshows were set to music and handcrafted for family and friends for their graduations, anniversaries, funerals, and more. That, like the cakes, was not destined to become a full-time gig. I had a few part-time jobs, short-lived, at grocery stores, churches, and local nonprofits. I was never asked to apply any money made in these small endeavors to the family budget. I wish I had the foresight to put it all into savings for a rainy day fund, but I think the rainy day when I would need my own income was still too far outside my mind to consider. So it was fun money home decor, coffee with friends, clothes or shoes, whatever struck my fancy. As long as I kept the house clean and food on the table, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted with my time and money while he was at work and the kids were at school. That is until those part-time endeavors began to look like they might become more. The first time this happened was in 2008. We were Busy with family life, we were probably having our share of squabbles as always, but nothing notable that I was aware of anyway after the 2006 infidelity. That was the year I walked into a counseling office for the first time. I was certain the out-of-town incident was part of the problem, but there was a lot to keep me on a counselor's couch. Physical abuse as a child, spiritual abuse at the cult, crippling self-esteem, As we sorted through it all, I slowly began to realize my turmoil was not all in the past. I was neck deep in a knotted mess of emotional, verbal, financial, and psychological abuse right under my own roof from the person who vowed to love, honor, and protect me. The one I thought would rescue me from a life of abuse. Relating every detail of this awakening would be like taking a cross-country trip from San Diego to New York and trying to remember exactly how you got there. Which turns did you take? When were you in Colorado or Illinois? How many cars did you cross paths with along the way? I only know I made it, and I learned so very much along the way. It was not always a fun trip, but it was a necessary one, and I felt like a new person at the end of the road. As I continued through years of intensive counseling with as many as six different Christian counselors or pastors, I lost count. I kept getting more, pray more and be submissive, quote unquote, type of advice shared by presumed well-meaning people who hopefully thought they were helping. But it was terrible advice, given the reality of the deception, control, manipulation, emotional volatility, verbal assaults, gaslighting, and complete lack of personal responsibility from my spouse about changing any of the above. My children suffered right alongside me in their own ways. Sadly, that terrible advice still echoes in pastors' offices and Christian counseling centers around the world by people who have not the first clue what hidden, covert psychological abuse is, if even that it exists. Worse still, some of these pastors are narcissists themselves. It may not surprise you to know that this personality type, like corporate management positions, political office, and law enforcement, but would it surprise you to know that one of the top professions of narcissistic personalities is clergy? or ministerial roles, these people have an insatiable hunger for power, control, and authority over people and their lives. So add the disguise of people helping, and it makes perfect sense that covert narcissists would love any of these professions. Thankfully, two of my Christian counselors, Sheila and Chris, were not naive like the rest. They saw the truth, and they shared it with Stan and me even when the truth was not pretty. They both already had education and experience with the reality of my marriage dynamics. They believed me. They confronted it. They helped me learn how to step out of my victim mindset to stop caretaking, to start owning my own power, to set and hold boundaries, to take a million slow steps, one after the other, out of the oppression and into the light. Home stretch. We spent five years at the church we attended after the cult, the one with the Christian school. I served as a room mom, activities coordinator, substitute teacher, on the PTA, in the nursery, as college and career teacher, helping in the youth department, helping with drama and musical productions, and leading women's ministries and Bible studies. One gentleman, 15 years my senior, was evangelistic the nicest guy you would ever meet, and he put his money where his mouth was. He put his walking shoes where his Bible training was. He walked no less than five miles a week, door to door, all over town to share the love of Jesus. This guy was the real deal. He did not just talk about God and Jesus. He did not just sit back and judge people. He was too busy sharing the good news and loving people. One day, he and I were among those who came early to prepare and serve coffee before services. He said something to me that I will never forget. You're going to be the next Beth Moore someday. If you run in Christian circles, you know Beth Moore. If you do not, it's like a guy being told he's going to be the next Billy Graham. Beth Moore is one of the most well-known women's Bible teachers in America. Struck by his comment, I vividly remember even now the feeling it gave me. I'm not sure what to think about it, what he might have meant, or what he saw in me that I did not yet see in myself. For some reason, that comment has never left my mind. I know now what I did not know then. My calling was not to step into those exact Bible teaching shoes, but I am going to be the best teacher I can be with the singular goal of seeing as many people as possible freed from the oppression of covert psychological abuse in their primary relationships. First, I had to fully wake up to and exit my own. That awakening was in process, but oh so slowly fueled by many positive forces over the course of many years, including friends, counselors, and eventually a whole team of family therapists. But the one thing that encouraged my awakening more than anything was my choice to wake up a little early each morning to open my journal and pour my heart out. Trying to understand and heal whatever was afflicting my family and me, I filled pages and pages of what would become 15 journals. My journaling took on a life of its own. It started by chance through the suggestions made by several people on my path. Many mornings, I sleepily stared at a blank piece of paper wanting to crawl back into bed. But over time, the outpouring of my heart and mind evolved into a pattern that helped me understand not only myself, but those around me. It became my pathway to peace. Throughout the early 2000s, my journals were sometimes my only solace, as many dramatic and traumatic things were transpiring within my home and family, swirling all around me and inside me, causing me to have to dig deep within to explore who I am and what I needed and wanted in my life. Over the course of so many months, some events began to be undeniable, demanding the attention of our entire family. Some devastating events took place, harm to one of my children that is unfathomable. This once again inside a church, and again dismissed and denied by the church leadership. Suddenly, a handful of years after the cult exodus, we found ourselves again leaving a church. And because our church was also the kids' school, that changed again too. This time, though, we were not only not being loved and protected well by those we should have been able to count on, But what had happened was creating a situation we would no longer be able to ignore that caused further unraveling in our marriage. And I would face another simultaneous loss, which I would have told you in advance would not be a loss, saying goodbye to Daddy, my first abuser. He had been battling prostate cancer for three years. It was stage four when he was diagnosed in 2005. If he had not been the stubborn man he was, he would have gone to the doctor much sooner than he did. When prostate cancer is found early, it is highly curable. When you ignore symptoms and refuse to go to the doctor, it becomes the battle of a lifetime that can and will take you sooner than you should be gone. The latter was the case with Daddy. During some courses of his treatment, there was hope that he was getting a handle on it. Then, the spring of 2008, the news came that the cancer was back and had spread. I cannot recall now if the doctors refused to continue treatment or if he gave up. I only know suddenly we went from regular chemo treatments to hospice. A hospital bed was brought into the living room of the house. All of us kids and grandkids had recently helped to finish remodeling once my dad was unable He had apparently softened in his old age in some ways and wanted to be sure my mom had a completed home when he was gone. I knew this was it, my last chance after the many times I had tried on visits to Texas to have meaningful and reconciliatory conversations with my dad about my childhood and our relationship. It would come down to this moment. No more would I have to endure his callous hands or heart. No more would I have to hear insensitive crap like, you turned out pretty good, so I guess I didn't do too bad, when I would try to get him to acknowledge the reality and pain of his abuse. I wanted so much to give him the benefit of the doubt. I wanted to believe he was changed for the better and could reflect with honesty on his mistakes. Such was never the case but now he would have no ability to say anything. I was never going to get the daddy-daughter bond I had longed for all my life, but I was going to get to say my piece. He could do nothing to stop me now. When I finally found a moment at the house with just him and I, he was lying on his deathbed and had little to no ability to open his eyes or speak. Simple, slow movements and a whispered word or two were all he could offer now. I had rehearsed this moment in my mind a thousand times. When it finally came, I don't know if I even said it in the polished way I had hoped for. You know, I've been trying for years to find a space where you and I could peacefully coexist. I never cared about trying to punish you for the abuse you inflicted on me and Mama and all of us. You always seemed to think that is what I wanted. It wasn't. I just wanted you to acknowledge it. I wanted to hear those two simple words that could have erased a lifetime of pain. I'm sorry. You never said those words to me, Daddy. Now I have to accept that you never will. And I never will have the daddy-daughter relationship I wanted and deserved. Instead, you are leaving long before you should. And you're leaving a legacy of pride and pain rather than one of healing and restoration. That was your choice. Here is mine. I forgive you. For all the times you hit me when you should have hugged me. For all the times you made me watch you hit my mom when you should have just spoken to her and worked out your differences. For all the times you taught me fear and hate instead of love and trust. I forgive you. I will not let you destroy my life with bitterness and resentment for what should have been. For never humbling yourself to say, I'm sorry. I choose instead to believe that you did the best you could with what you had received in your life. I am sorry that you never had anyone show you how to humble yourself, how to own your own wrongdoing and shortcomings, how to repair relationships. I'm sorry you did not choose differently. And as you leave this world, I want you to know that I will be choosing differently. I will choose from this day forward to give people the benefit of the doubt to love the way I want to be loved and to honor myself by not allowing people to hurt me the way you did. Just like that day when I was 15 and I stood up to you for the first and last time, I will continue for as long as I live to say no more to what is bad for me and to embrace all the good that life has to offer. I will do this because I have decided this is where the pain and turmoil that runs in this family runs out. I will not repeat the generational patterns of pride and irresponsibility. I will choose differently. I am sorry it took your death to find this peace with you, but peace is what I feel at this moment. And I just needed you to know that I poured out my heart as I sat beside my dad's deathbed. We're good, he muttered slowly as he squeezed my hands. How apropos that the last two words this man would choose to utter to me in his lifetime would be words that once again glazed over my pain. Not the two words I had wanted all my life to hear. I'm sorry. Not the three words he had never once spoken to me. I love you. He said neither of these, which could have been so healing, finally. He said, we are good. And well, we were as good in that moment as we would ever be, because I finally got to say everything I needed to say. And if only because he had no other choice, he finally shut his prideful mouth long enough to hear every word I had to say. Closure. It doesn't always look like what we want, but it always brings healing. And so, I said goodbye to my first abuser and went right back home to continue doing everything I could to stop the bleeding in my own marriage, in ways my mother never did in hers. Home Run Baseball had been the backdrop of our family's lives since Colin was four years old. No matter where he went to school, he played baseball every summer. He always performed well, mostly at first base or pitcher. He had an intuitiveness about the game that could have made him team captain if there were such a thing in Little League. In the unluckiest twist of events, a 14-day-long battle with a cold turned into an asthma-induced bronchitis and near pneumonia just before tryouts for his first time on a public school team as a new student at Blue Springs High School that year colin missed a week of school passed out and knocked himself out on a table sending him to the emergency room his loss of 15 pounds in those two weeks must have been a lot of muscle mass and ultimately he was unable to perform for the two-day tryouts suddenly the door of competitive baseball was closed he took it well but i know it had to be a blow he stayed on the community recreational team for another year But baseball was coming to an end, just about as abruptly as his childhood. Callie, on the other hand, did not have one thing she always loved. She explored a few different interests, and nothing stuck for too long. I recall feeling this way myself growing up. I did not have a thing either, unless, of course, you count boy chasing. I could have won medals in that feat. Callie's longest-running interest was a few years of basketball while attending the private school, and a few years of theater, which thankfully was a great outlet for her girl drama. The basketball offered her a way to connect with her dad, something she always longed for. Again, something I could so relate to. She also sang in church and school performances, even solos on stage several times at church, and enjoyed being in theater productions at her school and in community theater groups. She did a few spelling competitions and other academic pursuits. She even recorded two full-length cover songs to a mini-album towards the end of her high school years at a professional recording studio. They were incredible. She has an amazing voice. I often think she could have made money singing. When she was young, she wasn't even nervous about being on stage, which always amazed me. She made it look effortless to perform on stage for crowds as big as hundreds, something I still struggle with. From the time the kids were littles, until they were teens, flew by in a way I cannot even believe. In the family I grew up in, you didn't hear adults reminiscing about their children's growing up years with sentiments like, it all goes by so fast, or don't blink, mama, you'll miss it. Because I didn't learn it growing up, I had to learn the hard way that kids grow fast. Smart parents discover how to relish every moment in the hecticness it is when I think about relishing fast childhoods that I am most grateful for my time at home with my kids. Today, I would still choose to be fully present at home, to relish every day I spent playing, exploring, learning, and doing life together with the two humans I made. Our days were spent at libraries in Buroque woods, zoos, and in the backyard, reading books, at bedtime, making funny shaped pancakes for breakfast with one kid or the other standing on a chair beside the counter helping, walks to the park and hikes through the woods, playing Costco samples with elastic bowl covers on little heads, serving me small portions of food, making blanket forts all over the living room with every blanket and quilt we owned. Those were indeed the days. I wish I could have made them last forever. Chapter 6, Dark Night of the Soul Awakening, ages 33 to 40. Life cast long and scary shadows all over those beautiful twilight years with my littles. Looking back on it now, it is difficult to define when things started crumbling. Was it when I knew he had cheated on me? When we gave up on homeschooling? Was it when Christian school became everything it was never supposed to be? I can't pinpoint it, and I think it is fair to say that it wouldn't be a pinpoint. It was an unraveling of a patchwork quilt of dysfunction and pain. It all stood upon an unsure foundation from the beginning. I only know I always did my best. I know I loved, I honored, I cherished. I hope every life ever affected by mine will someday know and believe that. I have learned how to release those who cannot accept or love the real me and be grateful for all who do. Having always done it, whatever seemed best at the time is a standard for my life, but it is also a lens through which I view my world. Through that lens, it can be hard to see anything but what my brain wants to remember. Digging in and trying to ask the questions of where things went off the tracks solves little As it fell apart over many years, I did my best to cling to hope. In all my journal pages of pain and fear, frustration and confusion, there was also hope. Although I was not immediately able to see the patterns emerging on the pages, one day it would all come together. Until then, the journaling slowly filled the void of understanding. The journaling itself helped me to become more aware. I journaled about what I had hoped for in marriage that I was not experiencing, what I wanted to do with my life, who I was now and who I was becoming, what my dreams were. My journaling was an outlet and inlet. Out flowed my worries, prayers, needs, and thanks. In their place flowed clarity and peace I had never known. I was putting things together in my mind that I had not been able to make sense of. Getting to know and love me was my full-time job for years. It was not an easy job, but it was possible, all because of hope. On each page of every journal, every tear was dried, every hurt soothed, every fear turned over to the one who could slay it. Most days, I left my journaling time with hope that where I was, though it may not be where I wanted to be, was also not where I had been and not where I would be staying. I was learning, healing, awakening. It all happened across the landscape of infidelity, insecurity, betrayal, disrespect, unmet needs. Every member of the family felt the pain of facades. Appearing one way in public settings, yet knowing behind the four walls of our home was an entirely different story until one day when the proverbial poo-poo hit the fan in a less deniable way. Suddenly, I was thrust into fight, flight, or freeze like never before, when one day after school in 2012, my 14-year-old daughter did not come home on the bus. Face to face with the evidence that the pain I was experiencing may also be greatly affecting at least one of my children, too. It was a long emotional afternoon into evening before we were able to determine that she had purposefully gotten off the bus in the wrong neighborhood, gone to a random stranger's door with a fabricated story about her father forgetting to pick her up from school, and convinced a kind retired Christian couple to take her to the next town over to her dad's house, quote unquote. Thankfully, this intuitive and concerned couple also asked to speak to her father before they left to be certain she was in a safe place. The father who came to speak with them, however, was not hers, but the father of her new boyfriend, a boy from our newest church we had just begun attending, a boy who, one year older than her, had already had assault charges filed against him from a former girlfriend we got a call from the boy's father and spent the evening with the help of one of her mentors from youth group trying to ease her concerns enough that she would come back home so we could work through her struggles she refused we spent that night and the next two days devising a plan to address her refusal to come home and our desire to keep her safe the decision that was made was heartbreaking for everyone But nothing else seemed workable, either for her or for us. Two days later, we tearfully helped her get packed, then drove her to a girl's home about 30 miles away. We had spoken with and met the staff. We had learned about the program and goals for residency. We believed would offer a pathway for Callie to safely address her concerns in a place where our entire family could receive the help we all needed. One of the most important things I learned through months of mandatory intensive therapy for every member of our family was that family dysfunction can often be revealed through the more overt actions of adolescent daughters, often the eldest. These girls are not the troublemakers they are often portrayed to be. They simply act out when the dysfunction they are forced to endure exceeds their emotional maturity. They are not the problem. They are the beacon pointing a light on the underlying current of emotional instability in the family. Worse still, we found out that the situation which led us away from our fourth church about a year previous was a much more disturbing and heartbreaking violation than we had previously known. As all of this unfolded, I had no choice but to awaken more and more to the reality of how dysfunctional my marriage was and the effect this was having on my children. This was devastating to me. I grew up in dysfunction, and all I had ever wanted for myself as a mom was to give my children the love and comfort they needed and deserved. I really thought I was. I said I love you a dozen times a day because I never heard it once from my father, and only ever heard it once from my mother. I made a concerted effort at bedtime to read to the kids and to talk with them about whatever was on their minds, to apologize when I had overreacted or when I knew I had hurt them, and to be kind and respectful to them in every situation. I may not have done any of these things perfectly or without fail, but I did do them. And that was more than I ever had. Received as a child. I doubt any of us ever achieve parental perfection, but admitting our imperfections goes a long way. Janet, the therapist I saw individually from the girls' home, was instrumental in helping me to identify the narcissist empath dynamics of my marriage to Stan. In addition to TED, The Empowerment Dynamic, a book by David Emerald. And Sheila Benzon, who had led me to that book, Janet was the first person to help me solidify the realization that I was stuck in a victim mentality. This coping mechanism was so ingrained in my psyche after a lifetime of emotional abuse that I had developed an avoidant personality. This led me to lose touch with the reality of how very dysfunctional my family system was. Remember, you do not know what normal is Until you know what normal is not. Normal is not having a husband who rages, pouts, and punishes you and the kids when he doesn't get his way. When someone offends him by not respecting him, quote unquote, i.e. not doing things his way. Normal is not... Your daughter having to witness her father's violent anger to the extent that she has an ingrained traumatic memory of her little purple suitcase her mom had embroidered with her name thrown across a room and broken beyond repair. Normal is not being so sheltered that you're not allowed to grow into the woman God made you to be through the trial and error of coming to understand yourself through adolescence. Normal is not watching your husband slam the butt of his hands against his head repeatedly in fits of anger. Normal is not having doors slammed in your face or being blocked inside a room forced to have an argument you desire to exit. Normal is not being screamed at and standing in shock and fear as your abuser peels out of the driveway or being held captive in a car with him driving erratically in a fit of anger. Normal is not being backed into a corner and threatened to do what he says or else. Normal is not keeping all your thoughts and feelings inside because they are not safe with your marriage partner. The required family counseling the girls' home brought into our family's lives was the something for me that showed me what normal was not. This therapy was instrumental in my decision to separate from Stan for most of the summer that year that Callie was living at the girls' home. Once again, I put up a boundary thinking I might be done. But ultimately, I didn't want to be done. I wanted to be healed. I truly wanted to see the change I'd been hoping for and working toward. I did want to be done, I was still trying to control outcomes, thinking my absence would affect change that my presence had been unable to affect. If it did, great, I could go back. If not, I needed the summer and the solitude to figure out how to officially end my marriage. Ultimately, I was not done. So by the end of the summer, Stan had hoovered me back on empty promises that I once again chose to believe. Not long after my return home, we enjoyed a very happy and hopeful reunion when my daughter got to come home too. One of my favorite photos of her and I was from the time immediately following her return. The joy in our relationship was evident on our faces. She had her sweet 16th birthday immediately after her release, so we threw her a big sweet 16 homecoming party at a local country club. All our family and her friends helped us throw her an incredible welcome home, homecoming, where we all got dressed to the nines in gowns and suits just like the school homecoming she had missed during her time away. I wish the joy and excitement had lasted. The truth that prevented it from being our new reality was that what needed healed still was not. We had not learned what we went through, all of that to learn. As unfair as it was, Callie had seemingly felt everything our family had been experiencing more intensely than any of us, until she could not handle it anymore. Once her pain was compounded by an even worse traumatic pain, she would open up to us about the depth of abandonment our decision to place her in the girl's home had caused for her. She didn't sugarcoat it either. When I needed you more than I ever had before, you sent me away, and all that did was teach me how to never need you again. I still cannot write that without crying. Sobbing sometimes. I have never been more heartbroken in all my life. It still tears my heart in two, and it always will. All I have ever wanted her to know and believe in her heart was that I would have given anything to be able to be what she needed, but my world was breaking in pieces too. I couldn't even be what I needed. I don't know if I will ever be able to truly convey how much I would do differently if I had it to do over again. To this day, I still don't know I still don't think we have reached the depth of the roots of her pain. I would give anything. Our decision to get her the help we had hoped the program would be, not only for her, but for our entire family, was another no more. We could not take any more chances that she would do something foolish, like running away and letting strangers drive her somewhere, or worse, And even before she was back home at age 40, my next no more was on the horizon. My marriage was dying. I could and would fight it with all I had. I said that divorce was never the answer for an exceedingly long time, refusing to accept defeat even when I had lost all hope. When I said my vows, I meant them. Right up until the very end, I had just told our final marriage counselor, we may never be perfect, but we'll we'll make it work. We always do. He gave no indication, but I have to wonder if he went away shaking his head in disbelief at that session. The retraction came out of nowhere when all talk for months had been toward ending things. With God, all things are possible. What more could I do or say? How could I mold myself more to fit into this die-cast of a life? I had all the right catchphrases and questions. If sheer determination alone could accomplish what I had desired and intended for so long, I would be telling you a different story. Instead, my marriage was dying. Yet, I was beginning to see something I never thought I would see within that realization. Hope. I did not know what my future held, but I had great hope because I was finding me, learning to love who I was and what I might bring to the world if given the chance to be free and find my true self. That inner knowing deep inside, fostered by the pathway to peace journaling process, I was continuing to immerse myself in daily. Even when I could still not admit it out loud to myself, things were going to be okay. I was going to be okay, come what may, even as the storm rolled on out of control. Well, that, my friends, is uh, the end of chapter six. So I think that's a good place for us to stop reading today. We're at about 40 minutes. So that's a good stopping place. We'll pick up next week with chapter seven, which is rising out of the fog at ages 40 to 43. So thanks again for joining me this week. I am really enjoying reading this book. Um, had an emotional moment there I wasn't expecting, but I still am never, never able to read those words without that because there's just such pain in that still. But that is what this book is all about, is getting in touch with the pain And my hope for you is that as we now begin to really dig into where I changed my life rather than just all of the things that had been going on in my life the whole time, that you're going to see how you can apply Pathway to Peace journaling to your life and where you're stuck. Because maybe your stuck places are different than mine. But what I am going to share with you and how I journaled through Pathway to Peace is going to give you an opportunity to journal in a way you never have before, and it will help you awaken to whatever it is that has you stuck. So listen for that as we continue to read through the next several weeks. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, we are now... Uh, at the halfway mark in the book. And we will be picking up reading next week on page 125. And there's a total of 200 ish pages. Um, So we are getting there. And so at like I said, um, we probably have a handful of weeks left reading the book to, to finalize it, we will most likely take the week of thanksgiving and christmas off so probably uh we'll take through the rest of the year to finish reading this book and then um, sometime between now and then i will make a determination about how i will be utilizing this podcast going into the new year in 2023 and i will let you know that decision when it is made Um, if you have thoughts on that i would love to hear them you all know how to reach me annie at startingoverstronger.com if you want to email or on the Starting Over Stronger After Divorce Facebook group page where you can post anything about your experience with Starting Over Stronger or what you're going through and and just whether it's encouragement or a need for encouragement. um, Share whatever you'd like there. And one thing I would love for you to share there is what would you like to see happen on this podcast going forward? We have a lot of listeners out there, and I... Sometimes feel like I'm talking into the abyss because I never hear anything back from you guys. So um, I know you're listening, and I appreciate it. And I'm so glad you're here. So get back with me and let me know what do you like about this podcast. Do you like um, the, do you like the readings? I mean, I don't have another book to read to you, so we, maybe maybe I could read another book. But what about, you know, the, the interviews and the SOS stories, yeah, you know, some of the interviews were important topics, you know, attorneys and financial advisors and therapists and things that, you know, are real practical matters that you're dealing with as you go through divorce. And then sometimes they were just stories of encouragement of other people who have gone through divorce and wanted to share their story of, of what it was like to go through that process and what they learned. Which of those kinds of things has been the most important for you? And what would you like to see going into 2023? Because we've covered a lot of things on this show. And I know for sure one thing that I am going to spend some amount of time on is a new service that I am offering that you'll find on the startingoverstronger.com website, which is called the Mindful Divorce. And that is just simply a totally different approach to divorce. Most people think the first thing they need to do when they are going through a divorce or wanting to go through a divorce is to hire an attorney. And what I am encouraging people to do is reconsider that because that is taking an adversarial approach. And the path of litigation is the traditional model of divorce, but it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, if both of you are willing to sit down with a coach and have a conversation about your divorce and what you would both like to see to come out of the divorce, and you're both willing to utilize positive communication techniques and to really, you know, dive in and put your heads together and figure out how to make the most of your divorce, how to make the decisions that you need to make about your finances and your kids and your house and all of those things. You can literally get divorced with one or two coaching sessions, one or two sessions of mediation with a mediator who will then help you ride up the agreement that you have come to, and you can have an attorney submit that for you. And with all three parts of that process, you will have spent so much less than you would by hiring even one attorney, let alone two. So think about it. If that's you, if that's your situation, or you are facing that, it's coming in your future, you want a mindful divorce. I promise you, you do. And yes, it does require two willing parties, two reasonable people who can put aside their hurt and their anger and do what needs to be done. And yet, you know, also as a coach, we can talk through the places of anger and hurt and pain. And tension, and we can have individual sessions if need be for that, or we can just really create space in those sessions for people who need to be heard and you know, just really work through things in a positive way, uh, unlike you will ever get with the litigated. Divorce. So um, check out what I have uh added to the startingoverstronger.com website about mindful divorce. You'll find a little bit about that on the homepage and uh, and even more on the coaching page. And then of course, you know, you can book a a mindful divorce consultation. Uh, you can contact me at Annie at startingoverstronger.com if you have just questions about that and how it works. I'll be happy to answer any questions you might have. But that is the way of the future. Stop you know, making divorce this boxing ring where everybody's in their corners and they come out swinging. That's just not conducive to good health for either party or their children. So let's talk about how to do divorce differently. That's what the mindful divorce approach is all about. So reach out if that is something that you could benefit from. And I will see you here again next week for more Starting Over Stronger, finding a pathway out of codependency to create a new life of peace.